Good morning. Everybody all right? Ask you if you will, since everybody's okay. Y'all said it. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 26 this morning. I've heard it said several times, many times, when you talk about the good old days, people say, but I'd like to know I'm in the good old days when I'm in the good old days so I can enjoy the good old days, if you know what I mean. We oftentimes miss these things. I'm pretty confident that the apostles at this point in the book of Acts understood the gravity of the situation, understood the intensity of the moment, understood what all of this was about, even as they're collecting their thoughts and processing these events. We find in Acts chapter 1 here this second half of the chapter, which kind of sometimes I feel like gets squeezed out because you have the first part where the Lord gives them the command to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, you're my witnesses, then ascends, and now we're just waiting, as the Lord told them to, and we'll talk about that, but we're just waiting on the Holy Spirit to come in Acts chapter 2. So this passage sometimes gets the squeeze, but I believe it is important for us, as all of Scripture is this morning, to look at this passage. And as we have taken on this theme throughout the first part of Acts, that the Lord will build his church. We'll see how this passage shows us in some ways how the Lord builds his church here. The context, after having seen the ascended uh, ascension of Jesus Christ and been told that just as he ascended, he'll come back, and then the angels tell them to go, we find that context now as the disciples are leaving that place to head back to Jerusalem in verse 12. So read with me, if you will. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice and Matthias, 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two have chosen you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's good for us. And we ask, Father, as we look to your word this morning, that you would mold us and shape us into the image that you would have us to be in, the image of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank, you for, we thank you for your faithfulness in all things. And just as we have sang, God, we are reminded that you are worthy of it all. So help us now to learn and grow through your spirit and your word together in Christ's name. Amen. As we look and talk about the context of this passage, surely as the apostles left Mount called Olivet, a mount that they were familiar with, in fact, in the Gospel of John, the Olivet Discourse, as it's called, is when Jesus called them together at the same place and discussed his second coming to them in, my, in, in Matthew chapter 24. And so here, they're leaving this place familiar, and they're walking back a day's journey to Jerusalem. Surely the discussion that they're having on the way back is not about how far it is. Why couldn't Jesus ascend a little bit closer to Jerusalem? we got a day's walk. Surely they're not discussing how their feet hurt or all the, the nature of inflation in Jerusalem at the time and all these other things. Most surely as they are walking back, they're processing and discussing what they have seen over the last few weeks. I mean, it's been an incredible few weeks. Just consider what they have been through. I mean, ultimately you can go all the way back to that night uh, when Jesus was betrayed. But if you, if you even do that, you go back to, to on the way to Jerusalem, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Or if you even do that, you can go back to all the other events that take place. Those past three years have been a blur. And now it ends in this culmination of all things that Jesus has died, has been raised, and now they just watched him ascend into heaven. And so they're talking through all of these previous events, surely. They're speaking about all the things they have seen, all the teachings that Jesus had, had given them while he was with them now are making sense to them, and they're piecing all of this puzzle together to where it sees this glorious picture of the resurrected Savior who has died and risen again for his glory, for their sake. So they return to the upper room. They come back to Jerusalem and they get back there in that upper room where Jesus had, had eaten with them on the night he was betrayed, where they had spent so much time and they do exactly what Jesus told them to do. Go back and wait. Wait on the coming of the Spirit. Our passage this morning deals with this time of waiting. The Lord ascended 40 days after he was raised, as the scripture tells us. And then Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2. He ascends 40 days. Pentecost is the day, the 50th day, if you will. So now there's 10 days in between the ascension and Pentecost, 10 days in between these two events that we find our passage dealing with right here. And the importance of this passage is it establishes again how important the apostles were in the history of the church. For the apostle Paul, writing in Ephesians, 
when he's talking about what the church is made up of, those who are far off that have been brought near, those who are separated now have been reconciled. They've been brought together into, as he called it, the household of God. Those who were enemies have been made friends, but even more than friends, they've been made family, and God is building them up together as a family, as the house of God. And what Paul says is this, that this household of God, this family of God, this house that's being built is one that is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Which brings us to the importance of what's happening here. The apostles that we see in our passage, and as they restore this number to 12, the apostles are the ones who would lay the foundation of the house of God, the foundation of his church. That foundation is found in the writings of the New Testament. This is the foundation of the apostles. That's why Paul says it's the prophets and the apostles, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And all of our books here in the New Testament are written by apostles or someone who has traveled closely with apostles, like Luke himself, who traveled with Paul, or Mark, who traveled with Peter, written by them to give us the foundation for the church upon which we build. And what we need to know is that we don't need another foundation. This is the one that has been laid out for us. And so what happens here is of greatest importance. This church that we hold dear here and the church for all ages that is built upon Jesus Christ as the cornerstone has the foundation that has been laid by the apostles, which leads us to a couple questions. Who are they and how does one become one? Who are the apostles and how does one become an apostle? If you, if you have time here to look back in Luke chapter 6, and all y'all got time. I don't know why I said it that way. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus calls his apostles. Now remember, Luke is volume 1. The Acts is of uh, the apostles is volume 2. These two go together as the work of Luke. So he presupposes sometimes that we remember what he wrote in the first volume, having written it to both Theophilus in the first volume and the second. And so he's writing here in, an act, in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, In these days, early in Jesus' ministry, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That's Jesus. Verse 13 of chapter 6, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve who he named apostles. Now, sometimes we, we misunderstand some things in the text. I just want to be clear. There were more people following Jesus than just these 12. Those what they call disciples, those who were following after him. And we saw how these 12 were chosen as he, he tells them to follow me. But at this point, Jesus is making it clear out of all of the disciples that were following, all the people that were following his teaching, he specifically chooses these 12 out of that group and calls them apostles. Apostle meaning one who is sent out, basically. And so Jesus calls these apostles out. And then here in Luke's gospel, you see the list of those apostles like you see in Acts chapter 1. Only in Acts chapter 1, there's one missing, and that's Judas. The same list is there minus Judas. Now, that idea of an apostle in its general sense is simple, one who is sent out. But here we're talking about a particular group of people. In fact, in our passage, we see these apostles take shape as a particular group. The apostles were a unique group that came together for a period of time to establish the foundation of the church. 
Hear me when I say, the apostles were a unique group that came together for a particular period of time to establish the foundation of the church. In that sense, then, we define an apostle as one who was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They had to be a witness to the resurrected one, as one not only was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, but one that was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. As Paul tells us in Corinthians, over 500 saw Jesus alive after the resurrection while he was on earth for those 40 days. Over 500 witnessed him. But there was these particular 12 that Jesus set aside and commissioned them for the task of taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're there. So their task then, while they are witness to the resurrection, commissioned by the resurrected Jesus, their task was to lay the foundation of the church taking the message to the uttermost. That's why, and I can say this this morning as we look at this and understand the nature of the apostles, that's why we can say there are no modern-day apostles in the same way. There's no modern-day apostles in the same way as we have here in Acts chapter 1. You may call yourself one in the general sense as one sent out. That's fine. But when we look at the text, this group was appointed for a specific period of time by Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior himself, to lay the foundation of the church. We don't need new apostles. We have their foundation that is laid. We don't have to look anywhere else. We don't need to go anywhere else. We have the New Testament. We have the foundation that is laid. We have the works and word of the apostles themselves here. And so while they wait, while the apostles wait, this was not the first time they waited, by the way. They waited before when Jesus had been crucified and waiting to see if he would be raised. But that day when they waited, they waited with fear and worry, and concern, not knowing what may happen to them, having watched Jesus die. This day, they wait with a different mindset. On this day, they wait having witnessed and seen the resurrected Christ. There's no more fear or concern. They wait with anticipation and expectation about what Jesus will do, what will happen next. And as we see, as they lay that foundation of the church, we also recognize that they also give us a posture by which the church should be in. So we see their example even in the waiting now for the church. If the Lord's going to build his church, we see the example of the apostles. We have the teaching of the apostles and the example of the apostles here. And what is that example for us? Verse 14. Verse 14 says, All these have enlisted out all of the apostles, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Here we learn that the apostles all drove a Honda. Just seeing if y'all paying attention. It says they were with one accord. I was I was in one accord. I was challenged to use that joke, and since it's a classic dad joke, and I'm a I'm a classic dad, I use it there. What does it mean? There's three things we want to see here. First, they're all with one accord tells us that they were all in unity. During these days while they were waiting, they give us the posture that they have, which becomes an example for us, and they were all unified. Now, this is no small thing. As they're in one accord, it says, it's no small thing because when we read the Gospels, we see that disciples had disagreements all the time. Some of them wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem, and he said no. Some of them fought about the food that they were going to feed with the 5,000. Some of them were concerned about this, worried about the perfume, worried about this, worried about that. Disagreements rose up all the time. The disciples were a lot like us even today. They all had their opinion, and they all were right. 
And so disagreements were there. So it's no small thing to say that now they're unified. They're in one accord. And this moment, by the way, is perfect for disagreements. Jesus said, y'all wait on the Holy Spirit, but he didn't tell them where, and he didn't tell them how, and he didn't tell them how long, right? And so they don't have any ideas. Surely some people had opinions with that. Let's all go wait at my house. Nah, your house doesn't have a good TV. Let's go wait at the other house. Y'all know what I'm saying. We need to go here. We need to go there. We need to do this. How long do we wait? Everyone surely had difference of opinions, but at this time, they all have laid their opinions aside and they all waited in unity, unified. Paul, again, in the book of Ephesians, calls the church to be unified. In fact, I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul, having said that you were far off, now you've been brought near you were, were disobedient, and, and, and God made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive, and now he's, he's brought you into this family. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4, you must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says you must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I think his word choice here is on purpose, of course. He's saying you must be eager to maintain this, understanding that the unity that the church has is not something they can attain. If we tried to attain unity, we would be in here all day and all of our life because we got different ideas and different opinions come from different places with different histories. Everybody thinks they know what you're supposed to do. Everybody's got a preference. Everybody wants to do everybody else's job. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If we were to say, hey, y'all figure it out, attain unity, the church could never come to unity. We would never find it. But that's not what it says in the passage. The unity that we have has been given to us. We have unity that has been given to us because of what Christ has done in each and every heart of our lives. He has unified us under that head, which is himself, Jesus Christ the Lord, over his church. And so now we have one truth and one faith and one baptism, as Paul says. So we not only can attain it, we've been given it, so we must seek to maintain it. And how do we maintain unity? We do it by loving one another by forgiving one another, being patient with one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. That's what Paul says. We maintain, we fight for unity because that's what has been given to us in Christ. So you stick with it. And why is that important? Surely the disciples talking about all the things Jesus said will be reminded of that moment, that intense moment on the night that Jesus would be betrayed and be crucified the next morning as Jesus prays with his disciples there that night of that last supper together. And John chapter 17 gives us that prayer. And notice what Jesus says. He's praying to the Father, and he's calling on the Father to do something for them. And he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. In other words, this is a gift from God in this, right? Jesus has given us this. The glory you have given me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. The unity that the church has together reflects the unity of the Holy Trinity itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are united. His church is united together. And so Jesus says, you've given it to me, I give it to them. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that, y'all get that so that? That so that is what we call the purpose clause. Why is unity so important? What's its purpose? Jesus says, may they be united as one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them. 
The unity of the church is so important because it testifies to Jesus Christ all that he did and all that he said. When the world looks at us and goes, how could they ever be united? Look at that disparate group. Look how, how far off they are with so many different opinions, ideas. How could they ever be united? We say Jesus has united us in himself. He has brought us together. And that's why it's so important for the apostles as they gather together, they're in one accord, they're united because the world needs them to be united as they share and spread the gospel out and about. So they fight for this and they're united in this truth. The world needs the truth and their unity testifies to it. They have a common savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, who died, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and they have a common mission to proclaim his name to the nations. They're united in these things. They set aside differences. They set aside preferences. They set aside opinions for the sake of the mission that is before them and for the name of the, of the Savior who has united them. Unity is vital for the body of Christ because it has been given to us and we must maintain it. The world is desperate to know Jesus and they know it by our unity, as it says. But not only in their unity. How does their unity work then? The apostles' unity leads them to pray. It says that they were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Their prayer, as they come together, was expectant. They knew the Spirit was coming, and they're anticipating that the Lord was about to do something amazing. In fact, they should know it. They've seen amazing things already. Even after Jesus, and, and John in his gospel tells us this, that so many things made more sense after the resurrection, right? They had seen all these things and heard Jesus, and now after the resurrection, they're all going, man, the light bulb's going off. That's why they're walking from, from the mount called Olivet to Jerusalem, talking about, you, you remember what he said here, you remember what he said there, and think about all of those things that he said, and here now it all makes perfect sense. And so now they come in prayer because they know God is about to do something amazing, because he said, I'm going away. And if I go away, that's better for you. So wait on it. It's going to get real good, basically. And so they pray with expectancy because God has promised something glorious to them. And I, I, I'm fearful that oftentimes our prayers are not marked with expectancy. Our prayers are the ideas that we're rubbing some sort of bottle with a genie in it asking for three little wishes. Like we got our little pocket Jesus that we could pull out on our behalf and we use prayer in that tendency. And surely we don't mean to. Surely we're trying not to. But that's exactly how it comes about because we go to God in prayer just simply asking for something that we need at the moment. When God says, you must pray when you come to me with expectancy. He's ready to give you far more than you could ever possibly know. Pray knowing that he will do it. Knowing that he can and how do you pray? You pray devotedly, it says, persistently, with expectancy and persistence you pray. Even though they had a promise, they devoted themselves to prayer. And what I mean by that is simply this, that, that surely sometimes we have promises and we think, you know what, it's already been promised, I don't need to pray about it, I don't need to do this, I don't need to do that. Well, when we do say things like that, we've missed the whole concept of prayer. Prayer is communication with God, right? And what that means is we're getting to know him. We're getting to know who he is and what he's done. Just as we read the word, we pray. And when we pray, we get to know who God is. Just as we get to know a friend in communication, we get to know who God is. 
And so we get to know him. We get to know the power of his name, the power of prayer. And prayer prepares our own hearts for God to do something amazing in us, through us, and for his glory. It prepares us even as we go. And so they know and understand the necessity of prayer. By the way, you remember that passage in Luke what happens before Jesus pronounces the names of his apostles, chooses them? It says he went off to pray, and he prayed all night long. Knowing what he was about to do, knowing who he was about to name, with expectancy and persistence, the Lord Jesus prayed. And us, as his people, should pray in the same way. The promises of God do not discourage prayer, but encourage prayer. As we continue to know with expectancy that God will do amazing things. Both of these words must mark our prayers, expectancy and persistence. I love that parable that Jesus gives. How often should you pray? He says you should pray like that old woman who needed some bread, and she just went up to the guy and just kept beating on the door, right? Kept beating on the door. He didn't want to mess with her. He didn't want to do anything. She just kept beating the door down, and finally the guy comes out, and this woman has worn me out, he says. Give her, give her what she wants. And Jesus says that's how you ought to pray. Wear me out. I'm ready. So for us as believers, we unite ourselves in prayer, expectant, persistent prayer. But not only that, we also look to the scriptures. It says here in our passage that they not only were united in prayer, but they were also united in looking to the word. Peter stood up among the brothers, and he says in verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Here, Peter is admitting the truth and veracity of the word. He's not simply saying, we got to make this happen. He's saying it's time for the scriptures to be fulfilled. Because as they look to the scriptures, they see the need of having 12 apostles. When they look to the scriptures, they see the need of fulfilling that spot that has been vacated by Judas. In fact, you see what Peter says. I love how he puts this because oftentimes people think that we as followers of Jesus after the fact have put on the scriptures what they didn't believe, but that's not what happens here. They think we came up with inspiration, but look at what Peter said. Peter says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. He's saying when David wrote the Psalms, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That this was God's word that David breathed out is what he's saying in the Psalms. It's particularly as he puts Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. This is God's word. Peter himself knew that the Spirit had been at work to reveal God and who he is. This is God's word he's breathing out. And here, in this moment, Peter says it's time we must fulfill the Scriptures by replacing Judas. Now, here he gives this parenthetical note in verse 18 down through verse 19 of Judas. And this is where everybody in the whole church, when I'm reading this, y'all weren't paying attention, and I said something about somebody's guts exploding and bowels poured out, and all of y'all go, whoa, this is, this is some. Here, Luke is making a statement about what happened to Judas. We find out in the Gospels that he went out and hung himself. Luke is giving the, the, the rest of the story, if you will, not only did he go out and hang himself, he literally hung there until his body decomposed and fell. And nobody wanted any part of that place. And so the chief priests took the 30 pieces of silver that he flung on the ground at them and bought that field and called it the field of blood. And it's desolate. Nobody wants any piece of that. 
In other words, Luke is saying, look at the utter hopelessness that Judas experienced. Look at what happens to those who turn and betray the Lord. Look at what happens there. And Peter stands up and says, we must replace him. Having known of the 12 tribes, having understood of the 12 apostles, putting those two things together, they looked at the scriptures together. They came to the conclusion that Psalm 69, verse 25, may his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. They've come to the conclusion that that's speaking about Judas and replacing him. Replacing him by studying the scriptures together, they had come to that place. And so what do they do? They choose two candidates to replace him. They give the qualifications for those candidates in verse 21. This is not something they got to go study the word. Let's find two faithful people. The qualifications were simply they've been from us, with us from the beginning. They were with us from the baptism of John all the way through. They never left. Whenever Jesus uh, uh, did some uh, crazy things, like, like, like whenever he said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, they never ran off. They didn't run off into persecutions. They, didn't do it. they were with them. They stayed faithful with them. And remember in Luke chapter 6, it says that there were a group of disciples that he chose 12 from. So we know that there was more than just those 12 that were with Jesus at the beginning. And so they choose two men, faithfully been with Christ from beginning to end, following after them. They weren't even upset when they didn't get chosen. They've been faithful to it. And they choose two men who have shown themselves to be faithful. And they name those men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. This guy's got three names. You know, he's important. And Matthias. They've got these two men, been with them from the beginning. But not only that, it says they've been witnesses to the resurrection. They've been witnesses to the resurrection and they must become a witness to his resurrection with us. They choose these two men and by choosing these two men, they pray. Lord, you know the hearts of all who show which, and show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They pray to God. You know the hearts. You know their lives. You know everything. They're trusting God. Two men who are qualified in their minds, either one of them would be fine. They leave it up to the Lord. And what do they do? They roll the dice, right? They flip the coin. They cast lots, as it said. So they pray and they soak it up in prayer and then they cast lots to see which one it is. Now, some of us may look at this and say, that's crazy. They cast lots to see they roll in dice. We, sh we can't do that in church. Y'all shouldn't, by the way. They flip the coin. I mean, what in the world? What we know is however they chose, either one of these men were qualified. Either one of these men would be fine. However they chose, either that's the case. They weren't putting up two men that weren't disqualified or one that wasn't, one that wasn't. Either one would be fine. And then they lift, after praying, they left it up to God. Now you may think this is happenstance or chance. Whatever the case may be, whether you vote on who it is, whether you flip a coin, whether you roll the dice, whatever the case may be, the apostles knew the scriptures. And what do the scriptures say? In Proverbs chapter 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So it doesn't matter, and I'll stick by this and stand by this. There is no chance and there is no happenstance when the Lord is in control of his universe. And God in this moment, having the apostles knowing the scriptures, God in this moment uses this time to choose Matthias through the casting of lots. They choose Matthias to replace the number. And here, they displayed unity 
They displayed unity by being devoted to prayer and to scripture. Do y'all recognize what just happened here? The apostles solved a problem. They solved a problem within their body and they solved it by being united through prayer and scripture. For us, that becomes a great example of how we build the church. Not in casting our own opinions or setting our own agendas, but by uniting together through scripture and prayer so that whatever problem may come, whatever difficulty may come, whatever task is before us, we go together forward for his glory and for his name. They're united together in scripture and prayer. And this becomes a beautiful testimony to how we operate as the body. But I want to close right here. Pulling something simple out. I love in verse 15, it says, Peter stood up to replace Judas. Now, to anybody who knows the text, you know that Peter and Judas both had some difficulties in the last days of Jesus. In fact, the scripture tells us Jesus himself said that Satan has come into Peter, right? He is, I mean, excuse me, Satan has come into Judas. And then it tells us that that Satan demanded to sift Peter like wheat. Satan was going to tempt both of these men with the fact that he wants them to betray or deny Jesus. And Judas denied him and betrayed him. He went, he took his 30 pieces of silver. He thought that was going to get him something. He accepted that 30 pieces of silver and he sold Jesus out, kissing him on the cheek, turning him in. Peter, who was told he would deny Jesus, said he never would, but when the rooster crowed after he denied him the third time, he saw Jesus face to face recognizing that he had failed him as well. Now I find this interesting because you have Peter here in this chapter standing up to replace Judas. Both of them had denied Jesus. Both of them had failed to the temptation of Satan to betray him and turn their back on him. Both of them were in that same boat just a few days ago. But what is the difference? Peter is standing up as one who has been appointed by God to take it to the nations. Judas is now being recognized as one who hung himself and fell headlong into a field. Died. What happened? Matthew's gospel tells us that after Judas betrayed Jesus, He recognized it got out of his control. He turned him into the high priest, the chief priest, if you will. They gave him the silver. And when he turned it into the chief priest, he thought that would be it. But the chief priest had done something he wasn't expected. The chief priest had taken Jesus, condemned him, and turned him over to the Romans. And Judas thought, that's too much. Wait a minute, I didn't agree to this. I didn't agree to you turning him over to the Romans. And when they turned him over to Pontius Pilate, Judas comes back to the chief priests. And it tells us in Matthew's gospel that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas recognized his own problem. He recognized that he had done something that was sinful. He recognized that he was guilty. He recognized he should not have done this, right? But what was Judas's response in that recognition? He said he changed his mind and he went to the chief priests. You see, Judas tried to make everything right on his own. He tried to go back and cover up what he did. Hey, I tell you what, let me give you back the 30 pieces. You call Jesus back from Pilate's house. We'll just say this thing's over. Y'all might can do a little bit slap on the wrist or whatever. Let's fix this because Judas felt guilty. But what the chief priest said to Judas is quite chilling because Judas went to fix 
this problem he created and the guilt that he received from it. And it says, he brought the 30 pieces of silver back saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Judas fell in this terrible dilemma that he knew he was guilty. He knew he was sinful, but he tried to solve this problem himself. He tried to solve it in his own strength, in his own power. He tried to alleviate his guilt, assuage his guilt, if you will, so that he didn't have it anymore. He tried to get rid of it. He tried to solve it by going back and saying, hey, let's fix this. Let's do this thing right. And ultimately, that led to despair. Ultimately, that led to the fact that Judas left out of the chief priest's place. He went out to a field. He hung himself there before Jesus had even been beaten, before Jesus had died on the cross, before he had raised again, been raised again, Judas was dead in despair. He turned to himself. He tried to fix it himself, and it left him to despair. But Peter, Peter, after denying Jesus three times, he couldn't wait to get back to him. Remember when he heard on that Sunday morning that the tomb was empty, John may have beat him, but Peter got there and went in. Let's see if he's there. I need to fix what was messed up, right? I need to fix the problem I caused. I need to fix my own guilt and shame for denying him. But not only that, the next, that evening when Jesus appears in the room, it wasn't the time. Jesus comes in, he's teaching, all of them are in there, he's doing all this, and the next thing you know, Jesus disappears. And before Peter can get up and speak to him, he's gone again. The anguish only continues for Peter. But then a few days later, they look out. They've been fishing all night. They've been in their boat, right? Fishing all night. And as they're coming in for the morning, they see a figure over on the shore cooking breakfast for them. They see that figure and they go, who is that cooking breakfast early in the morning? Who could that be? And one of them said, oh my, it's the Lord. And before they knew it, they're getting their oars in place. They're starting to do it. They hear a big splash. And what's that big splash? Peter's already jumped in the water. And he's swimming to the shore. And he gets there before any of them. You know why? Because Peter was desperate. Having known his guilt, having known his sin, Peter was desperate to get before the resurrected Savior and have him restore him again. Sell him, he's sorry. There, Peter had changed his mind from his own sin before, but this was what true repentance looks like. Peter was not trying to deal with this on his own. True repentance causes you to flee to the Savior himself, and he's the only one that can restore you. And the difference here in Acts chapter 1 between Peter and Judas is that Peter fled to Christ. And there he found the hope he was looking for. There he found the forgiveness he needed. There he found everything he had ever wanted in Christ. And Christ Jesus restored him himself. And he's the only one. He's the only one that can bring hope to our despair. Judas looked for it in himself and he lost it. Jesus Jesus has it, and Peter gets to him as fast as he can. My friends, that's the difference. And what I'd say to you is our church, our church in this room right now is full of people who recognize that the only one that can save us and redeem us is our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. That we don't look anywhere else. We were desperate at one point, and maybe you didn't jump out of a boat, but I'm sure there was a time in your life when you turned to Christ knowing you had nowhere else to go. He's the only one that can save you and redeem you. And as the apostles build up this foundation, what we recognize is they're a lot like us. While they may be unique for a moment in a place, in a time, they're just like us. They failed, they sinned, they did wrong, but 
Christ Jesus restored them and gave them life. And so we come into this church together having been restored by the Savior, recognizing it's not our agenda but his agenda, recognizing it is not our preferences but what he has called us to do because we were lost and undone and he met us on the shore and saved us from our sins. And in him we trust. The alternative is Judas. And I pray that no one here today is trying to fix your sin on your own. It is helpless, it is hopeless, and it leads to nothing but despair. But that you're fleeing to the resurrected Savior, Christ Jesus, the only one who can forgive sins and restore our life and give us hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the words of the apostles. Thank you, God, that you have given us a sure and firm foundation through their teaching that we can build our life on. So unite us together as your church through prayer, through the word. Help us to to fight together with one mission to maintain that unity so that the nations may know, so that people may believe. God, give us this, this spirit within us that fights together for the sake of the gospel. And God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, they're still trying like Judas to fix their guilt and their sin on their own. May they hear the words of the world. What's that got to do with us? But may they also hear the words of their Savior. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, May no one carry the burden of their sin. For Father, Jesus Christ has carried it for us and he's put it to death. And so may everyone in this room find relief from their guilt and their shame in Christ and flee to him today for your glory and for your name. Let's stand together and sing.